0: For listening to the Martinis and the Macabre podcast, this show contains graphic content and explicit language, and is intended for adults. Listener discretion is advised. <laughs> Hi, guys, and welcome to another episode of Martinis and the Macabre, the podcast where we drunkenly discuss morbid murders, mysteries, and mayhem. It's just going to be me tonight, guys. I'm your host, Erica, and we've tried to record the last two nights and had some issues with the Audacity on one of our laptops. So we've lost all of our audio. So here I am again by myself to entertain you. So I figured. I could take this time to cover a case that is pretty gruesome. Happened to a teenage girl and her sister. And probably wouldn't be the best idea of something to do while we're joking and being crude and asses. (laughs) So before I get started, I do want to take this time to ask you guys to go on iTunes, Stitcher, Wherever you get our podcast, if there's an option to rate a review, please do that. We're not begging you for five stars or anything. It gives us an idea of what we're doing right, um, if there's improvements we need to make. It also helps bring our show to a wider audience, and if you like us, some other people might like us too. Um, so if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated. I uh, also want to invite you to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. That's at Martinis in the Macabre. And our Twitter, which is Martini underscore macabre, and you're also more than welcome to visit our website at www.martinisandthemacab.com. And while you're at it, if you're interested in any awesome merchandise for Martinis and the Macabre or just some really cool shirts or phone covers, head on over to Giggy That's G I K I clothing.com. Really cool stuff there. Uh, Billy just updated the Martinis and the Macabre shirts. Now it actually has a print on the front and the back. So if you like that, take a picture of it, put it on our Facebook page or on Twitter, uh, show us your Martinis and the Macabre merchandise and we'll give you a shout out. So now that we've got all that out of the way tonight, I'm going to be covering another Indiana story. And I've had this researched for quite a while but it was one of them similar to the Kellyanne Bates one that I did where it was just so hard to try and make light of in any way possible that I've, I've held off on doing it. So we'll do it today and I'll try not to be too crude and hopefully you can stomach it out. There is a lot of um, torture, so if something like that makes you queasy, then uh, this may be one to skip. The torture and murder of Sylvia Likens happened in the fall of 1965, and it was probably the worst case of torture in Indiana, possibly even in the country, just because of how many people were involved, most of them children. Most of the information that I got on this case comes from the book House of Evil, the Indiana Torture Slang*, which was written by John Dean, Who was a reporter who not only covered the story as a local journalist, but then also was called to the stand during the trial. And then he turned around and wrote a book about it. This book was written a long time ago, but it's pretty much all the information that you need. So Sylvia Likens was 16 years old, known to her friends as Cookie. She had long curly hair and was slender and pretty. She often tried to hide a gap in her teeth from a tooth that had been knocked out when she was young. She was well-liked, generally quiet, but always willing to help others. She had a babysitting job and would give part of her earnings to her mother to help out the household. She was religious and owned her own Bible. She had been baptized two years prior and attended church service often. She was born between two sets of twins. The older twins were Danny and Diana, who were two years older, and Jenny and Benny, who were one year younger. And she was closest with Jenny. She was planning on starting freshman year in high school in September of 1965. Now, her sister, Jenny Likens, was 15 years old, and she had a deformity in her left leg from polio, and she had to wear a metal leg brace, but she generally kept up with her sister and friends when they socialized. The girl's parents, Lester and Betty, weren't the greatest of parents. They drifted from job to job, and the family moved often. They sometimes depended on welfare to make ends meet. They were separated in July of 1965, when this train wreck of events started. Lester living in his hometown of Lebanon, Indiana, 30 miles northwest of Indy. The kids were in Betty's custody in Indianapolis, living two blocks away from the New York street house that Sylvia would die in just a few short months later. So Betty, Sylvia, and Jenny stopped into a thrift store that July day, Saturday the 3rd, Betty tried on a pair of shorts with Sylvia and Jenny in the dressing room with her and then stuffed them into her purse. The girls, embarrassed, of course, and wanting to distance themselves, exited the store and then waited on a bench outside for their mother. But their mother was caught. Before being taken to the jailhouse, she managed to give the girls $2, telling them to get something to eat. So their mother hadn't come home by the next day and the girls ended up at the nearby Banishevsky household of 3850 East New York Street. There were seven children total in the household headed by their 37-year-old mother, Gertrude Banachewski. The eight of them lived in a two-story double or duplex that only had six rooms and a basement and the girls ended up staying the night that night. So here's some information on the Banachewskis. Gertrude had married and divorced the children's father, John, twice over a 17 year period. They had six children Paula, 17, Stephanie, 15, Johnny, 12, Marie, 11, Shirley, 10, and Jimmy, 8. Gertrude also had five miscarriages. During the time between their marriages, she was briefly married for three months to a man in Kansas. After her second divorce from John in 1963, Gertrude had a relationship with Dennis Wright, a much younger man, possibly not of voting age, who allegedly beat her. They had a son, Dennis Jr., and Gertrude had had her sixth miscarriage just the previous April. So altogether, that was 13 pregnancies out of those seven bore children. Dennis left her, but Gertrude was going by Gertrude Wright, despite never having married Dennis Wright and legally carrying the last name Banaszewski. Gertrude suffered from chronic asthma and anxiety and was a chain smoker. Her income around the fall of 1965 consisted of child support, her occasional payments from ironing jobs, and 17-year-old Paula's infrequent contributions to the family. Paula had disappeared earlier in the year, running off to Kentucky with a married man. She had recently returned and told Sylvia and Jenny she was two months pregnant. So the girls would stay the night at this house with all of these children while Betty was in jail. The next night, Sylvia and Jenny's father and brother Danny knocked on the door, looking for the girls and their mother. One of their friends had directed them to the Banaszewskis. Gertrude invited them in where Lester explained that he had an opportunity to tour Indiana County fairs with a carnival company, running a concession stand. Because that's everyone's dream job. He wanted their mother Betty to go with him and was going to leave the girls with his mother in Lebanon. Gertrude jumped at the opportunity to make some extra money and offered to board the girls in her home for $20 a week. The children all voiced agreement and Lester stated he was okay with it, but Betty had to give her approval as well. The next day Betty was found as she had been released from jail and she agreed to the arrangement as well. So Lester paid $20 in advance, and the girl's parents took off, leaving them in a house they hadn't inspected with the woman they had just met. Big problem there, guys. So a little taste of things to come. About a week into the girl's stay, Gertrude had not received another payment from Lester, so she pulled the girls upstairs and slapped Jenny, yelling, quote, well, I took care of you two bitches for a week for nothing. The next day, a money order arrived in the mail. She just hadn't waited long enough. Food was scarce in the house, and the children's intakes often consisted of a couple pieces of toast for breakfast and a bowl of soup for dinner. They usually just skipped lunch while playing at the park. There was an influx of neighborhood kids coming to the house each day, including 14-year-old Richard Hobbs, who went by Ricky, and Stephanie's 15-year-old boyfriend, Coy Hubbard. The girls' parents would visit briefly during their time between fairs, bringing Gertrude's money and spending only 30 minutes to one hour with their daughters at a time. Parents of the Year. Near the end of July, Gertrude, quote, punished the girls for getting her children to, quote, loiter around grocery stores, though they were actually just looking for empty pot bottles to turn in for pennies. They were both whipped with a quarter-inch thick paddle which would be a common punishment doled out, often by 17-year-old Paula when Gertrude would delegate due to feeling weak from her asthma. This control seemed to go to Paula's head, and on August 1st, she broke her wrist when she punched Sylvia in the jaw. She bragged about it, even in church, and said, I tried to kill her. The cash she had to wear for six weeks just became another weapon to hit Sylvia with. And things got worse. For some reason, Sylvia was usually singled out. Maybe it's because she didn't fight back. Maybe it's because Jenny was too sympathetic with her leg brace. Whatever the reason, Sylvia started, quote, getting the board often. She was accused of calling Gertrude a name, then later for supposedly taking $10 from her purse. If she ate something the others didn't have or was accused of such, she got the board. After a church dinner, she got the board for, quote, eating too much. For that one, she wasn't just spanked. She got hit in the back 15 times with a paddle. They did that because they thought she ate more than everyone else. In September, Sylvia was given a bowl of soup and told to eat it with her hands. Gertrude accused Sylvia one evening of getting White Castle from her older brother Danny, despite Sylvia not even having seen Danny since school let out. Gertrude didn't believe her and punched her in the eye until it was black and blue. Paula also got involved and pulled Sylvia out of her chair and onto the floor by her hair. Gertrude reserved a warrant on August 18th for failure to pay the newspaper boy, which in 1965 was a big deal. She didn't respond and the police showed up to arrest her on August 27th. She resisted and then faced two charges resisting arrest on top of defrauding a newsboy that was a thing. (laughs) She ended up paying fines for these transgressions, but the stress and increased lack of money only worsened her temper. But the girls never reported the abuse, not even to their parents when they came to visit. Author John Dean states in his preface of the book House of Evil and in the book itself that Gertrude seemed to have a, quote, thing for younger men and possibly even adolescents. He mentions her relationship with the young Dennis Wright as well as a time during this period when she danced to music in front of 14-year-old neighbor boy Ricky Hobbs. He questioned whether there was more to the relationship between the 37-year-old Gertrude and young Ricky and proposed that this fondness for boys made the girls rivals in her mind. She began accusing Sylvia of being sexual with boys and being pregnant and once kicked Sylvia between the legs. Because Sylvia had been receiving so many accusations and punishment about sex, she started rumors at school about Stephanie and Paula of a sexual nature. Kind of a way of payback. Stephanie found out and punched Sylvia, but when her boyfriend, six foot one hundred and seventy pound Coy Hubbard, found out, he beat Sylvia's head against the wall and flipped, like Judo flipped, her onto her back on the floor. Gertrude punished her with the board as well. Gertrude began keeping Sylvia out of school around this time. Sylvia had asked for money for a bathing suit that she needed for P.E. class, and Gertrude refused, because she wasn't about to pay that. When Sylvia came home with one, she was screamed at for stealing. When Sylvia broke down and confessed, she was beat with a three-inch-wide black police belt. Somehow this turned into a lecture about premarital sex, and Sylvia was again kicked in the vagina. Coy showed up to visit Stephanie during this and helped Gertrude with her discipline. She then held lit matches to Sylvia's fingers to remind her not to steal. Gertrude began lying to the neighborhood kids, telling them Sylvia had spread rumors about them or their families. They would then in turn attack Sylvia, and the fights were often encouraged by Gertrude. She'd tell kids that would try to stop the fights, quote, Let them fight their own fights. This happened so many times that a mob-like psychology took over the group. Sylvia was getting attacked with the paddle, pot bottles, the belt, and fist by Paula, Stephanie, Gertrude, and Coy regularly. Other neighborhood kids would get involved, quote, in the game at times, beating and flipping Sylvia and burning her with matches and cigarettes. Her own sister Jenny was made by Gertrude to slap Sylvia in the face. She used her left hand in an attempt to not hurt her as bad. On October 5th, the girls' parents made what would be their last visit. They brought the girls' school clothes, paid Gertrude, and took the two out for a Coke. The next day, October 6th, was Sylvia's last day at school before being completely removed by Gertrude. Neighbor Phyllis Vermilion saw some of the abuse on Sylvia at different times when she would stop by. She witnessed Paula tossing hot water in Sylvia's face and then rubbing margarine on the burns. She saw Sylvia with black eyes on two occasions, which Paula boasted she had given her. She also saw Paula cracking the black police belt on Sylvia. Other neighbors complained of constant noise from the household, but only later reported to the police they heard screams. No one called police or made any kinds of reports of potential abuse. The only thing reported was an anonymous call concerning a child in the home having, quote, open running sores. A public health nurse came by the New York Street House on October 15th in response to the call. Gertrude explained that the child was Sylvia and that she had kicked her out because she was a prostitute and wouldn't keep herself clean. And evidently this answer was sufficient and the nurse left without any follow-up. Sylvia had been down in the basement during the visit. The nurse didn't even see her. One day, Gertrude ordered Sylvia to undress in front of Paula, Johnny, Jenny, and a neighborhood boy. She then made Sylvia squat and insert a Pepsi bottle into her vagina to show her sister Jenny, quote, what kind of girl you are. Stephanie walked in on this, slapped Sylvia in the face, and ordered her to go to her room, even though she was unaware of why this was taking place. She just assumed that Sylvia had done it. On her own. So then there's the basement. Around October 12th, Sylvia began staying in the basement intermittently due to wetting the bed, most likely a result of kidney trauma from the board or being flipped onto the floor. Her bed, if you can call it that, was a pile of rags and old clothes, partially under the stairs. Gertrude threw Sylvia down the steps in front of Paula, Stephanie, Johnny, and Coy saying, here's how you do it. The stairs took two 90-degree turns and Sylvia tumbled through both, all the way to the bottom. This became a new form of torture. Coy would hold Sylvia's hands behind her back and then kick her down the steps. Paula would trip Sylvia when she came down from the second floor to the first by sticking her foot out as well. Once in the basement, Sylvia was mostly fed crackers and water. Baths started being given about every other night, but Sylvia was reluctant because the tub was filled only with the hot water from the spigot. They began binding her hands and feet and lifting her into the tub. One time she fainted and Gertrude grabbed her hair and beat her head on the side of the tub to revive her. If she screamed, she was hit with the paddle. Johnny began tying gags in her mouth to muffle her screams. The group began putting lit cigarettes out on Sylvia's body. Sylvia had larger sores as well, about the size of a baseball, of unknown origin. They were treated with rubbing alcohol. An open sore found on Sylvia's scalp was treated by holding her head under the faucet with scalding hot water turned on high. Paula decided a better treatment was to just cut off Sylvia's hair. Gertrude had begun taking more and more medications for her asthma and anxiety by this time. She slept more from being on antihistamines, coracidin, and phenobarbital, so Paula took over more. Koi continued judo flips and kicking Sylvia down the stairs. He would then bang her head against the wall once she hit the bottom. Johnny also rammed her against the wall, along with hitting, kicking, and grinding his shoes on her bare feet. The rest of the clan was instructed to tell others that Sylvia was in the juvenile center, Jenny slipped up one time to friends from church and said Sylvia was at home, and poor Jenny got the board when the others told on her. The neighborhood kids were threatened as well, one being told, your ass is grass, if she revealed the truth. Sylvia was starving and passed out on the living room floor around October 20th. She was unconscious for almost 20 minutes despite attempts to wake her. When she came to, Stephanie and Johnny helped her up to a lone mattress lying on the floor of an upstairs bedroom. Around this time, Sylvia was instructed by Gertrude and Paula to write a letter to her parents on school paper as a way for the torturers to cover themselves if something happened. In this letter, Sylvia, quote, confessed to her sins and misconduct. Sylvia was too weak to try to resist, and she wrote the letter. The tortures continued in the basement. Gertrude had Johnny grab a used diaper of baby Dennis Jr.'s and rub it in Sylvia's face. She gave Sylvia a half cup of water and told her to make it last the rest of the day. One day, water was replaced by urine. When 11-year-old Marie recalled that, just a couple months prior, while Sylvia visited with her older sister Diana, Sylvia had been given a sandwich to eat, Paula and Gertrude hit the roof. How dare Sylvia eat a sandwich while the others in the house went without? Paula began choking Sylvia with her hands and held them clasped at Sylvia's throat for a half a minute. Gertrude then beat Sylvia on the back and the back of her head five to six times with a the paddle. They later bound her hands and feet and dumped her into scalding bathwater, and Sylvia again fainted. On october twenty second, Gertrude decided to give Sylvia a second chance to sleep in a bed. She had Johnny, Coy, and Stephanie tie Sylvia to the bed, and told Sylvia, quote, You can't go to the bathroom until you've learned not to wet the bed. Sylvia quietly whispered to her sister Jenny for some water. Jenny brought her some, and Sylvia quickly drank it up and fell asleep. She wet the bed that night. The next day, Ricky Hobbs, Gertrude's alleged neighborhood interest, came by to see how Gertrude was. Gertrude asked him if he knew how to put on a tattoo. He replied, I guess so, and she called Sylvia up from the basement. Gertrude stated to Sylvia that since she had, quote, branded the Banaszewski daughters, Gertrude was going to brand her. She said to the others in the house, She's a prostitute and she's proud of it, so we'll just put it on her stomach. She ripped Sylvia's clothes off as she stood in the corner and began carving into her skin with a sewing needle. She carved the I and apostrophe and the first leg of the letter M before complaining of feeling sick and ordering Ricky to take over. Ricky asked how to spell prostitute, so Gertrude wrote out, in all caps, quote, I'm a prostitute and proud of it, on a piece of paper for him. Ricky at least sterilized the needle by holding it in a flame, but as he continued scratching the tattoo into Sylvia's abdomen, he would backhand her if she flinched. Once the etching was complete, Ricky asked for something S-shaped to brand her with, presumably for her name, Sylvia. Shirley found a curved anchor bolt, and they heated it to a glowing red. Ricky applied the first curve of the S on Sylvia's chest, and Shirley did the second. But somehow it turned out looking like a 3 instead of an S. When Sylvia would squirm, Ricky would hit her in the chest. Ricky went home when the branding was complete. Koi came over later that day. He tied Sylvia up in the basement and banged her head against the wall six or seven times. Sylvia confided to her sister later that night that she was going to die. Jenny believed that Gertrude wouldn't allow that. Sylvia was allowed to sleep upstairs on the mattress that night. The next afternoon, Sylvia was bathed by Gertrude and Stephanie, but in a warm bath instead of a scalding one. Sylvia was then ordered to write another letter to her parents, dictated by Gertrude and Paula. This one said Sylvia had been abused by a gang of boys who, quote, got what they wanted and left her in her current condition. It seemed that Gertrude had some sense of impending doom at this time. She even talked about getting rid of Sylvia by dumping her somewhere remote. That night, Johnny tied up Sylvia, suspended by her arms from the basement steps, Gertrude and Johnny beat her and shoved crackers into her swollen mouth. The next day, October 25th, Gertrude became obsessed with losing Sylvia. She suggested that Sylvia be blindfolded and taken to the middle of a forest and dumped, and then police could be called to look for her. This is the only time Sylvia panicked. She tried to run out of the front door and made it to the porch before Gertrude dragged her back inside. Gertrude tried to make her eat some toast, but Sylvia was unable to swallow. Infuriated, Gertrude beat Sylvia repeatedly with a brass curtain rod until it bent. That night, Coy came by after work and hit Sylvia with a broomstick. Just one hard blow knocked her unconscious. It was the last time Coy saw Sylvia alive. The afternoon of October 26th, Gertrude tried to get Sylvia to eat some donuts and drink some milk at the kitchen table, but Sylvia was too weak to hold the glass and kept spilling the milk. So she was taken back down to the basement. Once down there, she lost control of her bowels and Gertrude began screaming at her to clean herself up. Johnny began spraying Sylvia with a hose borrowed from a neighbor and someone dumped detergent all over her body. Sylvia must have gone unconscious at one point and the family thought she might be dead. At this point, Ricky Hobbs was in the house and was able to discern that Sylvia was still alive, taking short, labored breaths. They decided she needed a warm bath as her skin was cold from the hosing. As Ricky and Stephanie tried to carry her upstairs, Ricky lost his grip on Sylvia's wet body and her head banged on the steps. Gertrude followed them up the steps yelling that Sylvia was a faker and insisting she'd be all right instead of helping or calling for assistance. After the warm bath, she was dressed in warm clothing and placed on the mattress in the upstairs bedroom. Gertrude, still yelling that Sylvia was faking, slapped Sylvia upside her head with a book. Ricky finally did something right and pushed Gertrude, nearly knocking her down the stairs. Stephanie suggested they should call a doctor and raise Sylvia's head. Sylvia uttered, quote, Oh, take me home, Stephanie, and stopped breathing. Stephanie began mouth-to-mouth respirations, and Ricky called the police. When police arrived, Gertrude met the patrol officer at the door, and stated Sylvia had just shown up in the backyard with no shirt on an hour prior, holding a note. She handed him the note, which was one of the notes Sylvia had been forced to write previously. It read, To Mr. and Mrs. Likens, I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night, and they said that they would pay me if I would give them something, so I got in the car And they all got what they wanted, and they did and did, and when they got finished, they beat me up and left sores on my face and all over my body. And they also put on my stomach, I am a prostitute and proud of it. I have done just about everything that I could do just to make Gertie mad and cost Gertie more money than she's got. I've tore up a new mattress and peed on it. I have also cost Gertie doctor bills that she really can't pay and made Gertie a nervous wreck and all her kids. I cost her $35 for a hospital in one day, and I wouldn't do nothing around the house. I have done anything to do things to make things out of the way to make things worse for them. The note wasn't signed. The patrolman just gave it a passing glance as he was there to respond to a girl who was possibly dead. Gertrude finally led him upstairs. As soon as he saw Sylvia and the condition of her body, he knew she was dead no further resuscitation efforts would be needed. Sylvia's autopsy declared a subdural hematoma caused by a blow to the head as the main cause of death, with shock, malnutrition, and excessive injuries as contributing factors. No evidence of any kind of sexual molestation was found internally, only the swollen labia externally, probably from the kicks. Those initially charged with first-degree murder were Gertrude Baniszewski. 17-year-old Paula Banashevsky, 15-year-old Stephanie Banashevsky, 12-year-old Johnny Banashevsky, 15-year-old Coy Hubbard, and 15-year-old Ricky Hobbs. Charges against Stephanie were eventually dropped. They all faced the death penalty for, quote, striking, beating, kicking, and otherwise inflicting fatal injuries on one Sylvia Likens with premeditated malice. And what would probably never happen today in a case of this magnitude All of the charges were tried together at the same time. This made the trial a huge clusterfuck, especially with four different defense attorneys, each objecting to testimony or exhibits that may not have directly pertained to their specific clients at certain times. If you really enjoy the trial parts in True Crime, over half of the book is the legal side of the case, so it's definitely worth a read. The original verdicts were Gertrude, guilty of first-degree murder, life imprisonment. Paula, guilty of second-degree murder, life imprisonment. Ricky, Coy, and Johnny, guilty of manslaughter, 2 to 21 years. Johnny would be the youngest inmate in Indiana State Reformatory's history. Gertrude and Paula's convictions were overturned on appeal. Gertrude was found guilty again in the second trial and again sentenced to life. But yet she was paroled in 1985. Paula pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter and was sentenced to 2 to 21 years. She was released after two years, despite escaping and being recaptured twice. Ricky, Coy, and Johnny were released on parole in 1968, just three years after Sylvia's death. So, uh, yeah, if you ask me, they got off kind of easy. That's the group mentality when, especially... You have influential kids. I mean, they're teenagers. They're still kids. Their minds are still developing. They're very easily persuaded to do things. And you have this woman who's an adult, an authority figure, telling you to do things. So you think, well, it must be okay if an adult's telling me to do it. It's just, it's horrible all the way around. Just horrible. I had actually never heard of this case until I started researching when we very first started the podcast and I ordered the book and started reading it and uh, definitely a very horrific story from our home state of Indiana that I had never heard of. I know several people out there have probably heard of it but considering I wasn't born in the 1960s I was unaware of it and um Maybe some of you listeners were unaware of it as well. And hopefully I did Sylvia some justice because she was just a sweet girl trying to go to school and go to church and be happy with her friends and family. She didn't deserve this. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's why we didn't want to do this one in a humorous way. So it was perfect timing since all of our audio went to shit. (laughs) For our last two recordings. Hopefully you were able to stand my voice. And not hear any jokes. For half an hour. Or 45 minutes or so. <laughs> so that just about wraps it up. Once again. Visit GeekitClothing.com. And leave a rating or review. Wherever you can. We are currently at our highest. Stitcher rating that we've ever been at. It's. 3,414 which doesn't seem that good but considering the highest we've ever had is like 6,000 that's pretty good (laughs) we've like halved that so that's good news we just got downloads in Austria so welcome Austria I think I mentioned last time or mentioned on the Facebook page that we've also got downloads in Japan and China and Switzerland still no North Dakota though Hmm. So, if you know anybody in North Dakota, tell them that, and we said hi and ask them what the hell they've been listening to, cause it ain't us. Must be something really good. Make sure you check out Phaser Seven Six Five on YouTube and SoundCloud. He makes awesome music and does awesome artwork. And I just recently shared a Patreon link that he has set up for himself for his artwork, his music. Things like that. He set it up all by himself. So go check that out. It is on the Martinis and the Macabre Facebook page. He's just. He's an amazing 12 year old. That does amazing things. And it's great to see him. Wanting to continue to grow with that. I will be including another one of his songs. At the end of this episode. So make sure you listen till the end. See what you think about it. Whether it's your type of music or not. You can't deny that the kid has talent. (laughs) (laughs) and we love him of course we will be moving shortly so hopefully we can keep stuff on track for you guys keep the episodes coming if you've got any thoughts on topic ideas feel free to let us know we've already done one I've got another one in the works Um, just drop us a line at martinisinthemacabre at gmail.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter that being said I don't think there's anything else I need to cover So I will wrap this up and tell you all how much we truly appreciate you listening and downloading and sharing. It just, it's amazing when we look at the numbers to think that we've come this far in just a little over six months. So seriously, thank you. We love you guys. You are awesome. So stay tuned and we will see you in two weeks. Bye-bye.